It was a year ago this weekend that the world as we have known it closed down. Uh, it was the beginning of a journey that none of us could plot out. It was a time when many of us would find ourselves disrupted and disoriented in ways hitherto unimagined. But along the way, there have been some constants. Above all, the presence of God with us wherever we are, as he has always been with us, moment by moment, each and every day. But one of the great constants for me personally has been just the chance to be in worship with you, uh, to be led by the amazing choir of Christ Church and the liturgists that serve, uh, to be uh, cared for by all of the folks that work within the tech ministries that enabled this whole uh, experience of worship to continue, whether you're online or whether you're seated right here in our sanctuary today. And you and your faithfulness to this um, journey that we've been on together, your willingness to keep rooting your life in Christ and in the corporate worship of God's people has been for me just one of the great assurances that I'm not alone during this time. So I just want to say thank you and mark this year anniversary and say how good it is to be in worship together once again today, wherever we happen to be seated this morning. Every year uh, around the Easter season, Hollywood rolls out some old familiar films. Uh, they know that these films are for us something of a touchstone, perhaps, to the deeper currents of life. And even where those films may no longer be in fashion or represent the way the world operates today, they still bring out these films. And one of them that comes out this time of year is Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 blockbuster, The Ten Commandments. How many of you have ever seen that one? I love it. Uh, it is one of my top ten favorite uh, movies of all time. Uh, the movie, as you will recall, starred Charlton Heston and Ann Baxter and Yul Brynner and Edward G. Robertson and Robinson and Vincent Price and a long, long list of other tremendous media celebrities of their day. It's a little bit like the uh, George Clooney series, the Oceans series, in which Hollywood people would fight amongst each other trying to get into the ensemble cast of the movie uh, that's what the Ten Commandments was like. This was a big budget, huge project, shot on location in Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. In today's dollars, the Ten Commandments grossed 1.15 billion bucks in just its initial release, placing it still, after all of these years, in the top 10 highest grossing films ever. It was nominated for awards in acting, directing, special effects, and more. The Library of Congress immediately put it into its national film registry. The American Film Institute still lists it in the, the top 10 list of epic movies ever made. And it's been 70 years since it came out nearly. Jeffrey Katzenberg of Disney fame confessed that the DreamWorks movie Prince of Egypt was his attempt to reproduce the Ten Commandments in animated form for children. 
None of this, of course, would be true if it were not for the real story behind the movie itself. If it were not for the author and his script itself. We would not be still enjoying this film if there was not a true drama so stunning that we are still fascinated by it to this very day. And I want to invite you this morning to think about that tale with me, but remind you first of the important backstory to it all. You may recall that in the beginning, God made a covenant with the very first human beings. He laid out a set of lifelines for making the very most of Eden. Adam and Eve, as you may recall, spurned that original grace. They violated the lines that God had set up to promote the flourishing of all things. And they set in motion a cascade of consequences that were not very good. Like a deadly virus or cancer, this not very good spread out and it created the very, very bad. The actually wicked and evil came from this seed of rebellion against God. And in a dramatic effort to save the creation project, God sends a flood to wash the world clean. In his mercy, God makes a decision he did not have to make and that is to continue life on this planet, to continue the, the project of creativity he had begun here. And so he saves Noah and his family and the animals and the seeds necessary to keep life going. And as they all emerge from the ark one day, God makes a second covenant, uh, a circle of commitment with the human family. He calls upon everyone to reverence life anew. To, to take seriously the wonder of the gift that we have. And, and in this covenant, he promises to provide the common grace that will be needed to preserve life in ongoing ways, ways we don't even think about most of the time. He promises to keep this project going until an ultimate day of accounting that is still yet to come. Somewhere out there in the future, no one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said when it comes to an end. Well, when Noah and his descendants continue to struggle with even this kind arrangement God has made, God initiates another massive centuries-long project. This one is, is an, a restoration act in a sense, an attempt to reclaim humanity in a different kind of way and address the ongoing consequences of the virus, the germ of sin at the heart of people which is creating such havoc. He begins this work by coming to a childless elderly couple named Abraham and Sarah in what would be today modern day Iraq. And he makes a third covenant with them. This one, a covenant of commissioning grace. God promises to give them a great legacy of children. He promises them a great love relationship with him. He, he assures them of the gift of a great land on which not only would their descendants be blessed, but all people on earth would one day be blessed through them. The life and work of Jesus, the expansion of his church into all the world, this very conversation that you and I are having right this moment, all of this 
is the outflow, the fulfillment of the promise he made long ago to that elderly couple. Abraham and Sarah have no ability to conceptualize at the moment that God says these to, things to them what is actually going to happen. They, they can't even take in that their humble lives could have that kind of reach, global, history-changing reach, and yet they just take one step at a time. They just keep following, sometimes wandering off the path and making errors and mistakes like all of us do, and then finding their way back, listening again to God's calling, they just keep walking step by step by faith. And then one day in a land that doesn't yet have a name, God finally gives Sarah and Abraham of that long-promised child. They name him Isaac, which means he laughs. And God will eventually change Isaac's name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And don't we all, <laughs> don't we all keep wrestling with God? And then the seemingly impossible multiplication process that God had described when he pointed to the heavens and the stars of the heavens and said, so many shall your offspring be. This multiplication process starts to unfold. And these once barren parents begin to give out that legacy in an almost Amazon-like expansion process. And the next many chapters of Genesis describe the generations of descendants that proceed from that child, Isaac, and his wife, Rebekah. Well, they give rise to sons Esau and Jacob, who with his wife Rachel have a set of 12 sons, and those sons will have family trees that will become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 kids is a particularly brash and bright young man by the name of Joseph, who, whose brothers, irritated by his brashness, sell him into slavery to a passing slave trade train bound for Egypt. And in a stunning story that we did a sermon series on a few years ago called Joe, Joseph rises up from slavery in Egypt and prison there to become one of the most important figures in Egypt. When a terrible famine devastates all of North Africa and the Middle East, Joseph's family migrates down to Egypt and Joseph is there unbeknownst to them to save his family and literally millions of other people by his brilliant administration of Egypt's unusual resources. They were the USA of the day, in a sense. We could probably use a Joseph in charge of the vaccine distribution process right now. He was a masterful leader for that time. And in the next years, the 12 tribes that had descended from Abraham now chain migrate to Egypt and they swell in numbers there in Egypt. However, as new pharaohs come along, new leaders of Egypt rise on the scene, the name of Joseph is gradually forgotten and the Hebrew people, as the Israelites have come to be known, lose standing in that society progressively and eventually find themselves, these once esteemed children of Joseph, find themselves now slaves. 
lost their dignity, their respect, their worth in the eyes of others. 400 years go by. And then to a peasant Israelite by the name of Jochebed, a child is born. A son is given. And what no one can yet see is that a new kind of government will be laid upon the shoulders of this humble child, prefiguring an even greater prince, an even greater son who is yet to come. Through a remarkable chain of events, Moses rises to become a prince of Egypt. And being a Hebrew at heart, he never forgets where he came from. He finds himself uh, inflamed by the sight of his enslaved people suffering under the cruel rod of the Egyptian culture. And finally seeing one of these Egyptian overlords uh, being unusually cruel to one of his Hebrew brothers, uh, Moses kills the overlord and then is forced to flee for his life into the Midian desert north of Egypt and he spends decades there in the wilderness. His eventual wife, Zipporah, has a family who teaches this prince how to become a shepherd in that wilderness. Hold on to that transition, if you would. This picture of a prince who becomes a shepherd. Because next week we will hear of a shepherd who becomes a king. And in these transitions, in this fascinating interplay, this fusion of humility, the shepherd's humility, the king's authority, the shepherd's heart, the king's might, this is preparing us to recognize someone who will utterly redefine power. Who will help us to understand kingship in a new way. One day as Moses is out in the wilderness keeping watch over his flocks, his eye is caught by a very strange sight. Interesting, one day we'll hear of another group of shepherds out keeping watch over their flock and they too will see a blazing sight. No detail of the story is not pointing us towards a fulfillment. And Moses sees this, this bush out there in the field. It's on fire. And as Moses grows closer to the bush, he's stunned by the reality that while the bush is burning, it's not being consumed. And then suddenly from within this apparition, a voice calls his name, Moses. Moses, says the voice, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land 
into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Tell him to let my people go. I invite you to take note of that word, go. It's an important word in relationship to the fulfilling of every single one of the covenants that we're going to be studying during this series. That word go will prove to be an immensely important word in the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. And as I suggested last week, there are places where God still wants you to go, where he still wants our church to go to fulfill his redeeming purposes. And the question is, are we willing to get up and to go in response to the call of God? Let me just say for today that like Noah and Abraham before him and countless disciples after him, Moses went in response to that calling. You can read all about it in Exodus chapters 3 through 18 if you like. You can go home and between the basketball games, watch the Ten Commandments for yourself today and be reminded of the detail. But God uses Moses to help deliver the Israelites from their slave masters in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They head out onto the great Sinai Peninsula. And for the next 40 years, they wander through the wilderness being tested and tempered by God. As I dare say, many of us over this past year have been tempered and tested by God in a land, a wilderness, a season we did not anticipate. It's there in the wilderness that God establishes the fourth major covenant that we read about in the Bible. It's a picture of a way of living that still has a really big message, a practical relevance for you and for me, I'm convinced. Exodus 19 describes the moment like this. They entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Now, when this place is described as the mountain, we're being told that this is not just any hill. We're hearing about what the, the, the place that the world over now calls Mount Sinai. Moses will eventually climb to the top of this great mountain. He'll be surrounded by this uh, cloud and this fire symbolizing the mystery and the power of Almighty God. And then he will come down from that mountain with his hair white as snow, a beautiful color, I might add. And he will be carrying in his arms the two stone tablets on which are inscribed what? The Ten Commandments, that's right. The Ten Commandments. I hope you'll go and read Exodus chapter 20 for more on this. Or if you have the time, may I say again, watch the Ten Commandments movie. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now it's good to pause right at this point because there is something very important to be noted here. Before God actually gives instructions to Moses or to the rest of us, before the Ten Commandments are actually passed along into the hands of people to to study and reflect on and to conform their lives to, before God uh, issues these very powerful instructions, God asks us first to remember his heart. There are a lot of people we don't want to take orders from in life. You can probably think of a few that have crossed your path who were quick to bark out orders and instructions in ways that you could change or improve or align yourself according to their purposes, but we did not like that. We did not respond to that. Why? Usually it was because we did not trust their heart. So before God issues any commandments here, he reminds Moses that what he is about to say, what he is going to ask Moses to convey to the children of Israel, is not selfish. The orders he's about to give are not about control. They're not about anger and conformity. The orders that he is going to pass along are all about one thing. They're about love. They're about love. Remember how I rescued you from your slave masters and how I carried you through the wilderness and how I've sought to bring you close to me, to my breast. Remember this. God is saying here, in effect, before you hear anything else, I'm going to try to say to you, please stop and ponder with what a great love you have been loved. Never forget this. Please remember that the commandments I give you flow from that heart. I want the best for you and for other people that I will bless through you. That's what these commandments are all about. With this crucial idea as a foundation, God then continues his conversation with Moses. And he defines what we now call the Mosaic Covenant. The first thing God does is to describe what he is asking of Moses and the people to bring from their side. Remember, we've been saying all along that covenants are these circles of mutual commitment in which People are asked to bring something and God promises to bring something and as both do their part, there's greater flourishing that flows. So God defines first the character of what it is he's looking for from the side of human beings and he puts it like this. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. In other words, I want you to obey the commandments that I'm going to give you fully. Keeping the covenant from your side means obeying the commandments I give you and doing so fully. I don't want you to treat my commandments like a buffet table. Saying, oh, I like that one. Ooh, that one, not to my taste. I'll leave that one aside. 
Obeying me fully doesn't mean, oh, I'll only have a few little gods before you. I'll sometimes keep the Sabbath holy. Or, Or I'll only covet that particular neighbor's things. Or I'll bear false witness only when I really need to protect myself or make myself look better. There is a word for doing what feels good and right to me, and that word is expedience. There is a word for looking at what God calls for through the lens of what I feel like doing, and that word is expedience. And the word for doing what God does, says, because he is right and good, that word is obedience. How's the obedience versus expedience thing going for us in our time? If you obey me fully, says God, then here's what will happen. And here's what I will bring from my side. If you obey me fully, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. What's the benefit God promises if we obey him fully? You're going to be my treasure, he says. Do you remember that scene in the movie Titanic when everybody finally realizes that the boat is going down? And suddenly everybody is highly animated. There's nobody sitting around on the deck chairs anymore. They are up and around and scrambling and they are grabbing stuff. They are grabbing the stuff they want to take with them to the lifeboat. They're getting the jewelry. They're getting the journal. They're getting the, the, the mink fur. They're getting whatever they can. But the character, the main character, Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, has only one thing in mind. You may recall, he breaks through barriers to get to Kate Winslet's character. He swims under floods to find her. He gives his own life to save her. Why? Because Rose is his treasured possession and he is hers. One day, long after this story, long after this encounter between God and Moses, a remarkable teacher will arise in Israel who will display a heart like God's towards people. He'll describe a woman who searches high and low to find a single coin that's rolled away. He'll speak of a shepherd who goes out in the storm leaving his 99 sheep to go and find the one lost sheep. He'll tell of a father who never stops scanning the horizon, waiting and hoping and praying that this lost child, this prodigal son, will actually come home. But it won't be just the stories that show us the heart of this God. We will watch him prizing and pursuing all kinds of people, the lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and and others that the world has given up on, that the world is counted sheep. And we will see him lay his life down upon a cross. Why? Because he loves his treasured possession. 
because people are God's treasured possession. Never forget with what a great love you have been loved. And if you take nothing else from this series of messages, I hope you will come to see in a new way how everything that happens in the Old Testament story, all of the details, the figures, the pictures, the images, even the phrases sometimes that were being presented with are an elaborate mosaic picture, a, a beautiful artwork woven into history that is pointing us, moving us towards the coming of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, when everything converges in him and we clearly see upon that cross how great is that love with which we have been loved. When God says this about Moses and the children of Israel, however, he's not just talking about their intrinsic value to him. They are his treasured possession, not just because he prizes them personally. He is also saying something about the role he wants his people to play in the world. Although the whole earth is mine, God goes on to say, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it look like for you to be my treasured possession? You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now when the Bible uses that word holy, we sometimes think of the characteristic of purity. And holiness has something to do with purity. But more often than not, when you see that word holy in the Bible, it means set apart. Set apart for sacred purposes. For example, we even today speak of the Holy Bible because it is set apart from other books to fulfill a sacred purpose, to reveal God's character and his intentions to us. Well, in the Mosaic Covenant, God tells Moses and his people that he is setting them apart to be a kingdom of priests. They are to be a holy nation, which literally in the original language means a set-apart people for the function of being a kingdom of priests. Biblical scholar Christopher Wright points out that the function of the priesthood in Israel was to stand between God and the rest of people. Priests would represent God to the people by their teaching and by their personal character. And they would represent people to God by their prayers and by their sacrifices. Nowadays, we tend to slip into thinking of priests as clergy people. Or put it this way differently, we tend to think that the only priests are the clergy. But in the Mosaic Covenant, God says in effect right here, I want all of you to think of yourselves as set apart for a special purpose. I want all of you to keep my commandments so that by the beauty and integrity of your 
character, your example, your self-giving sacrifices, you will help to draw other people closer to me. Centuries later, the apostle Peter would repeat these same instructions to the followers of Jesus. And this wouldn't be a new idea, actually. It would be a very old idea brought back to the surface again. A lot of people, Peter says in his first letter, a lot of people have stopped obeying God's commandments, but please remember who you are, church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You've heard this before, right? You know these words. Now you know where they come from. In God's original dialogue with Moses, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You have a special purpose in this world. Do you think of yourself? Do you think of your role in that way? Here's the takeaway I want to leave you with for today and then let us go. We no longer have the stone tablets on which those original commandments were written. We do have the movie, (laughs) but that's not entirely the same. What the world does have, however, are those same instructions recorded in the pages of Scripture. The world also has what St. Peter calls living stones, living tablets. People like you and like me on whose hearts the word of God can be inscribed and through whom God can still move towards others. So I want to invite you to work on inscribing the Ten Commandments more deeply upon your heart. I invite you to open up in your Bible today and to read again for yourself the list of those commandments recorded in Exodus chapter 20. Or as you walk out of the sanctuary, if you're here in person today, look left. Pause before the plaque that records them on the wall of our church. And then, having taken more deeply into ourselves this vision of the guidelines by which God wants to bring us to a greater flourishing, let's go and by God's grace live them out as the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the treasured possession that God has called us to be. Please pray with me. Lord, we just confess, I confess, how easily I let my vision fall, my sense of expectation for myself fall to the common level. 
Thank you that you never stop believing that I, that all of us, can find an even higher level for living, a more abundant and beautiful and worthy way of living. Thank you for the ancient call you gave to Moses and his people. Help us to hear it afresh. Take it into ourselves more deeply and personally. And then to rise up and go forth into all this world as your people. Living truly as your chosen people. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.